Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Joel Peterson on the show today, the founder and winemaker at Ravenswood Winery, and then also the founder of Once and Future Wines. Hello, sir. How are you? I am doing really well. How are you doing today? Really good. Thanks for asking. So you were born in 1947. I was born in 1947. My uh, mother was a nuclear chemist who had worked on the atomic bomb at Oak Ridge. My father was a physical chemist. He uh, made high-temperature greases for shell development. And I have to say that if they hadn't discovered wine, it would have been really grim conversations around the dinner table because they were into what they did, but they discovered food and wine in the early 1950s. How did that happen that they discovered food and wine? My mother did something quite unusual when I was born. She um, stayed home with me. I once asked her about that and she said, well, she said, you know, maybe I was ready. That's what women did during those days. And I said, well, you didn't do anything women did during this day. She, well, she said I was ready for a break. But you weren't much of a conversationalist, she said, and I got bored very quickly. So I learned to cook because it was like chemistry, and she really did learn to cook like chemistry. When she taught me to cook, she taught me, for instance, to scramble eggs. I didn't learn to scramble eggs. I learned to denature protein, and there were different levels of protein denaturation that gave you different textures in your egg. So... She read a book by Elizabeth David. She loved reading cookbooks because they took her to places in the world she knew she wasn't going to get for a while. She read a cookbook by Elizabeth David that said the French drank wine with their meals. And she thought, oh, interesting idea. She'd never had a bottle of wine in her life. It wasn't that my parents weren't drinkers. They were part of the sailing crowd in the Bay Area, and they drank lots of gin. So... In 1952, she went looking for a bottle of wine for Thanksgiving. She thought maybe they should celebrate with a bottle of wine. And she went to the only place that she knew of that sold French wine. And that was a place called the City of Paris in San Francisco on Union Square. And she asked for a bottle of wine that would go with Turkey. And the guy gave her a bottle of 1945 Chateauneuf de Pop. If it had been 43 or 44 or 46, I probably wouldn't be here today. Nor would Morgan, my son, who's a winemaker as well. They had that bottle of wine, and it really turned my parents into wine drinkers. They got pretty fanatical about it. And that was really good for me as well. Not only was I surrounded by these people who love food and wine, but when I was 10 or so, about 1957, 
my father decided that he was going to write more about wine. And in writing about wine, he found out that wine was hard to describe. But he decided that a 10-year-old would have easier words for wine. He would do these big tastings on Friday nights. And so he'd open the bottles, he'd taste them all before the rest of the group got there. And uh, he'd say, well, smell these wines with me. And uh, so we smelled wines for the first couple of years. And I smelled Chardonnay. He'd say, what's it smell like? And I'd say, well, it smells a little like apples. And he'd say, what kind of apples? And I'd say, well, I have no idea. You know, and he said, well, we'll figure it out. He'd go out and he'd buy different varieties of apples. He'd cut them up. He would put them into glasses. And we would smell apples until we could tell the difference between Northern Spy and Golden Delicious and Rome Beauty. So the next time that I tasted a Chardonnay, I could say that it smelled a little like Golden Delicious and maybe a little rancid butter. And there's some vanilla in there too. Every time I came up with something that was what he considered to be a basic word, he'd find the variation on it. So if I said spicy, he'd go out and you know, we'd smell cloves and anise and what have you. That's an incredible bonding experience with your dad. Yeah. And he wasn't exactly a baseball player. And so we didn't do sports together. I mean, what he loved to do was to go out without a wetsuit, go into the water off of Marin Coast, which is about 50 to 55 degrees, and pull abalone off rocks. And so my job was to throw out the crab nets and catch crabs and to build a fire on the beach and have the hot buttered rum ready for him when he got back with his limit of abalone, which was pretty amazing. You could just pick them off the rocks in those days. Everything you're telling me seems like he probably had a really strong sensitivity for the taste of food. He did. He was very organoleptically inclined, but he was also kind of a man's man. He was a sailor. He loved to sail his boats. But he was also kind of a, a rugged intellectual in many ways. You know, he was a true chemist, and he loved to take things apart and put things together. When I decided that I wanted to take auto shop, he said, I'm sorry, you can't take auto shop. He said, I will teach you everything you need to know about a car. He bought a car, an Austin A40. I think there were three of them in existence in the United States. And we basically took it down to the frame. And he said, okay, when you put it back together, it's yours. You know, I always think that they threw away the mold of men like him because he did all sorts of things. I mean, during the war, he not only did his chemistry, working on high-temperature greases, but, you know, he felt bad about not going to war, so he spent graveyard shifts in the shipyard building Liberty ships. So he had this whole group of skills that were amazingly wide-ranging. When you add all that up and you figure he probably would have lived through Prohibition, I mean, he never did any home winemaking? Because that... Something the guy who would have done home winemaking. <laughs> That's a very funny question because he, in fact, attempted home winemaking along the way. I mean, he was really fascinating because he would go up and he'd visit Lee Stewart at early Souverain. He was friends with the people at Stony Hill, the McCrae's, go up to Parducci and Pedrincelli and like all the old Italian wineries along the way. One of his favorite wineries was Nervo, where we'd stop on a regular basis before there was a highway that going up there. It was a long trip in a 1950 Ozonville. And he actually got Pinot Noir grapes one year, even though he didn't particularly like California Pinot Noir. And we made some wine. We helped him crush it, and it was all kind of in backyard stuff. It was so bad that he ultimately dumped it out before he even pressed it off. And we had Pinot Noir vines growing in the backyard from the seeds for like years. But he also got involved in other things. Uh, one of the things he did 
1966, he had tasted Mario Gemello's wine. It was the 1960 Diamond Jubilee Cabernet that Mario had stored in sort of large upright redwood tanks. The wine was delicious. It was really good. And he said, oh man, this would be so much better if it was aged in small French oak cooperage. But most people didn't really even know much about French oak cooperage in 1966. Mondavi was just getting into it. So he managed to convince Mario that he should put up six barrels of his 1966 vintage of the Cabernet in French oak. And he told Mario that if Mario didn't like it, he'd buy it all. We drank 1966 Cabernet for a really long time from Jamello. <laughs> so your parents used to have dinners with Gerald Asher and Daryl Cordy and stuff, right? Oh, yeah. My parents, they were founding members of the Berkeley Wine and Food Society. Berkeley Wine and Food Society was put together by George Linton, who invited a group of, you know, really doctors and lawyers and Indian chiefs of various sorts to join him. They were all East-based types. So you had people like Dottie Adamson, Belle Rhodes, Barney Rhodes' wife, uh, my mother. It was like a giant competition. So they would have dinner parties. And part of the deal was that you had to put on a more interesting dinner party than your last dinner party, as it were. So, you know, they'd bring in people like Harry Waugh and Michael Broadbent and lots and lots of sort of Lumieres in the wine business, mostly European Lumieres of one variety. And they put on these amazing dinners. It was really quite profligate in many ways because they did wines you couldn't ever do now. For instance, my mother and father put on a dinner that was from beginning to end Sauterne. And my father picked the wines based on how dry they had gotten with age. So they started out with a 1911 Sauterne, I can't remember which one, that they served with the opening pate. And they just moved through the dinner, getting slightly sweeter, moving the years up, hitting every great vintage of Sauterne. You know, there were wines available that I got to taste that um, I'll never taste again. I've tasted some of the really great wines of the world and without ever anticipating being in the wine business. You know, when I turned 18, I never assumed that I would be in the wine business. And I went off to school and ended up with a uh, degree in uh, immunology and biochemistry. And I um, worked in a laboratory at Mount Zion Hospital, stimulating lymphocytes and growing tumor cells and uh, doing that kind of stuff. I ended up getting a deferment, which allowed me to go to Europe for a whole year. Uh, I basically just took off and traveled for a year around Europe in a 1955 Volkswagen. We got to places like Budapest and Prague and like cities that had been pre-World War II, unbombed cities that were it was just, wow, just had a sense of history. So got clear up to Amsterdam, went way up into Norway and Sweden, and uh, then flew back and the East Coast and found a cheap motorcycle and put it back together and uh, rode it back across the country. Ended up in my uh, parents' living room on Thanksgiving Day. I, I drove right in on Thanksgiving Day just as everybody was sitting down to Thanksgiving dinner. It was like perfect. <laughs> that was my dad and that was my mom. I might feel like a pressure to kind of take life by both hands, you know, in some sense. I mean, you were the oldest child, right? I was the oldest child. Uh, so there was a lot of pressure. I actually had a half-brother who was the oldest child from my father's first marriage. And he died in a car accident 
when he was 16 and I was 11, I think. And uh, I suddenly became the first child. It was interesting. I actually felt the shift of responsibility in being the first child. But when I came back from Europe, I sort of hung out with, at my parents' house for a little while because I just didn't have a, any sort of thing. I had to sort of restation myself and get myself in line. And literally, my father at one point almost threw me out, not because he didn't like me and not because we had any argument. He says, you just have to get out and do something. You know, like you can't hang around here any longer. So there was some pressure to get out and do something, but and I also had my internal pressure, which made me want to do something and do something interesting. And I was well ensconced, headed on towards an advanced degree in the medical field when I ran into Joe Swan at a tasting at the Vintners Club. My father died unexpectedly in 1971. He was 57 years old, and he had given up his career because they had moved his department at Shell Development. They'd moved it to Tennessee, and he was not about to move to Tennessee. And so he began trying to make the wine business a real business, and he was trying to get licenses so he could sell wine and write about wine. And yeah, so he was along that route. But he'd also begun working with Jerry Draper, who was a businessman who ultimately bought a wine store and a distributorship. They had been friends. They started a group called the Vintners Club together. And the day before the Vintners Club was to start and have its first meeting, which was in San Francisco, my father died. So Jerry kindly gave me a membership of this club. There was no way I was going to afford what I thought was an astronomical initiation fee of $5,000. He basically said, you know, in memory of your dad, I'm going to uh, give you this membership and you can come to our Thursday evening tastings. And they did these really amazing tastings, like paired whites and paired reds. So they do six pairs. So you'd get two Pinot Noirs and two Cabernets and two, they could be from anywhere in the world. And I was sitting at a table with Joe Swan one night and I managed to not only match all the pairs, but I managed to name all the wines and I got the vintage dates correct on eight out of the 12. And Joe Swan said to me, do you do that on a regular basis? And I said, Tonight was a, you know, it was a pretty good night. I said, but I can do something like that most nights. And he said, can you teach me to do that? I said, um, yeah, give me about six years and lots of wine. He said, well, I've got six years. He says, I've got an extra bedroom up in Forestville. And by the way, are you handy with uh, tools? And I said, yeah. He said, well, I'm building this uh, building. And so if you wanted to help me, I could use the help. So that began a relationship with Joseph Swan and his family. I would go up to his house on the weekends and all my vacations, and we built his, um, his steel building, and I helped him you know, sort of equip it. And uh, I thought, okay, well, this is a chance to learn something about making wine. And he was planting a vineyard, so I learned about planting vineyards and training vines, and I spent from 1972 until 1976, working with Joe in all my spare time, still did my work at the hospital. How old was Joe at that time? He had retired. 
So he probably was in his early 60s. You know, they retire you in the, in the airlines when you're 55. And he'd been retired for some time by the time I met him. So I would say he's probably 62, 63 at the time. He was a tall, imposing man. He had these piercing blue eyes and this chalk of white hair. I mean, he was a handsome man. And women couldn't resist him. He'd been married a number of times. He had a lot of kids. And I guess he couldn't resist women either. Works both ways, doesn't it? He was an artist, painter. He would do landscapes. He had a self-portrait of himself hanging in the living room. He loved wine. He loved food. He loved working in the, in the vineyards. He'd been doing this for a long time. He ran into um, Andrei Chelichev somewhere early in his history. I'm not sure exactly how that happened, but at one point... Joe and I are doing a racking, and, and June comes down to the winery, and she says, you got a call. And Joe says, you know I don't take calls when I'm working. Because he was. He was like a pilot. He would start things in the beginning, and he'd very carefully check things off, and you didn't stop a project until it was done. I mean, like, that was just his way. It was very systematic. And um, June said, I think you'll take this call. So he, he walked back up to the house, and he you know, came back, and he said, okay, let's empty that last barrel and fill the lines with sulfur and would you like to go to lunch with me? And I said, yeah, absolutely. But where are we going? He said, you'll find out. And you know, he never stopped things in the middle. I mean, this was like, it was so totally bizarre. So we got in his old panel truck and we headed out and we started going across Petrified Forest Road. And I said, we're going to Napa Valley? And he said, yeah, we're going to Napa Valley. And I said, well, where are we going to go? He says, you'll find out. <laughs> so we go down Napa Valley and we get to Rutherford and we turn to the right, right across from Bolu. And I said, wait a minute, this is the road to the Depan's house. And he said, yes. And we pull up into the Depan's house and waiting in the parking lot is Andre and Maynard Monahan, who was their um, marketing guy at the time. The Depan's, they were Andre's boss. They owned BV, and they would go back to France every year. And it turned out that these boys would raid the refrigerator when they left. And it appeared to me that the Depans had gotten wind of the fact that they were raiding the refrigerator, so they would stock the refrigerator. So, like, they began unloading the refrigerator, and it was like foie gras and like caviar and multiple different kinds of breads and cheeses. And like, Joe had brought wine, and BV was flowing like mad, and so sat around the table with, you know, Andre and Joe and talked and told stories. And it was, I mean, I was a, really a kid. And, and in a sense, I was in my mid-20s. I was totally wide-eyed. So basically, I got the tutelage of Joe Swan, but Andre came over to Joe's house quite frequently, and he acted as Joe's consultant. So I really ended up getting to know Andre fairly well and getting a lot of good information from him about sort of winemaking and philosophical thoughts about the wine business. So what were some of those? Andre was, um, he would tell stories, of course. And, you know, one of the stories was about how, I think it was the 43 vintage was so cold that he had trouble fermenting the wines and that he and, and his son had picked the only grapes because there really wasn't much labor and they had to actually heat up the must and he said it taught me something about extended macerations. And so we would talk about that, but he always had some kind of a story that went along with it. 
he was a pretty safe winemaker, and he used American oak at BV. I think he wanted to use French oak, but he advised Joe on French oak and the use of it. And French oak barrels, like new French oak barrels, were like a real novelty. And so you had to think about how you were going to utilize them. I mean, I remember Joe Swan got convinced to use French oak after he had barrel fermented a Chardonnay in whiskey barrels. The result was pretty dramatic, I have to say. Whiskey-flavored Chardonnay is uh, pretty interesting. I think for Joe, it was like one of those never-again moments. And uh, so he went to uh, all French oak. But, you know, you had to soak them up. You had to um, sort of get rid of the, the rough edges in the oak, in Joe's mind. Joe used things like gelatin fining, which I don't use, but he was very much about smoothing the wine out and making it balanced, as was Andre. Now, so those were part of the things that were going on. And I think that um, Joe Swan got really well known for making Zinfandel, and as did Ridge. I mean, Ridge got really well known for making Zinfandel in about the same era. Joe Swan's first Zinfandel was 1968. Unbelievable wine came from an old vineyard on his property. But I think they really were the core of the renaissance of Zinfandel. They, um, they didn't want to make Zinfandel. They wanted to make Cabernet in Bridges' case, and Joe wanted to make Pinot Noir. And neither of them had the grapes really at their disposal, they had to plant the grapes, they had to wait for the vineyard to come in. But they wanted to practice winemaking. So Joe basically said, well, I'm going to make this Zinfandel here on my property just like I'm going to make my Pinot Noir. I'm going to think about it the same way. I'm going to barrel it the same way just because I need to know how that all works. And the Zinfandel, which had, of course, up to that time been going into Gallo Hardy Burgundy or Jug Wine and had been since Prohibition, responded and made really magical wines. The first Ridge Zinfandels were lovely as well. I mean, my father bought them. I remember then they made Ridge Essence Zinfandels, which were sort of, the fermentation was stopped early, so they had some residual sugars to them. So they were a dessert wine, but they were really actually quite good, you know, really interesting stuff. So they played with these wines in ways that they were going to make their finer wine. And that influenced me in ways that became more profound as time went on because the wine was so good. And I thought, well, why aren't more people doing this? Why aren't people thinking about Zinfandel? And as I, I began investigating Zinfandel, I began thinking, wow, if you look at it, it has a trellising system, which is totally appropriate for the style of grape that it is. It's a bigger clustered grape, more Mediterranean. And so Goblet or head pruning is exactly the right system for that. So the clusters don't sit on top of one another. It is dry farmed. You know, like how many dry farm vineyards are there in California now? Not many. And the um, crop levels were in that two to two and a half tons an acre, which is kind of where they legislate in Europe for crop levels, depending on the region, it's slightly different. But the crop levels were at a level where you could make very high quality wine out of them. And I was like, wow, this is pretty amazing. You have all these elements, but nobody's doing it except for Ridge and Just One. And so I basically jumped into the Zinfandel boat as a result of that. And Zinfandel was not expensive and it was available and some people were making it into white and lots of it was going to Gallo and there was an opening, you know, basically I found a niche and 
I made first wines in 1976. I made 427 cases of wine. I made it at Swan. And I did not release those wines until 1979. And when I released them, I put an $8.50 price tag on them. Oh, you should have heard the screams of pain. Zinfandel for $8.50? You've got to be kidding. Like, that's insane. I'm going, but I'm using French oak, and I'm using extended maceration, and it's had a lot of bottle and barrel time. It's worth it. And it turned out that it sold out. So the thing about Swan's wines for me was that on the Zins, they seem really ageable and they seem lower alcohol. Now, of course, he worked with different vineyard sites, so there's different eras. When I was working with him, he was primarily working with the Teldesky Vineyard. And he was working with Mike Teldesky's Vineyard, which is really, there's a dirt road that separates the Frank Teldesky and Mike Teldesky properties. They were brothers who had some kind of a falling out and divided the property with the dirt road. So when we went and visited Dry Creek and visited the Teldesky grapes, they were some of the best grapes you could get in California. Tuscan Red Hill Series soils, benchland, really in many ways the perfect climate for Zinfandel, being farmed in a very, very traditional way, cross-cultivated, you no know, herbicides used. But Joe and Mike were always kind of at each other. So, But that lasted for five years or so. And Joe made some of his best wines. They varied in alcohol. They weren't actually that much lower in alcohol. I mean, uh, for instance, the um, 1973 and 74 wines were, one was 14.1 and I think the other was like 14.9. So we're not talking like 12. I mean, really this whole notion that Zinfandel had been a lower alcohol wine, you hear it all the time. And Daryl Cordy says it all the time. But you have to go back to the 1960s to find wines that regularly were that. You know, Daryl made wines in, um, at Sutter Home. He made some really wonderful wines in the 70s at Sutter Home. And those wines were in the mid to upper 13s. So what counts as lower alcohol? I'm not quite sure. And there was the labeling thing. You know, you could label a wine kind of semi-randomly. The alcohol was not ever really true. So if you were an old line producer and you knew you were going to get checked, you definitely didn't want to label it above 14. In fact, there was this rumor you couldn't ferment above 14 because the yeast would die and like just it wasn't possible. Therefore, it was the dessert wine and it had gotten labeled as dessert wine. So it was taxed like a dessert wine where the tax was much higher. So People labeled them lower. They labeled them at 12. But I bet you if you went back, you actually ran analysis on some of the wines that were labeled 12, 12 and a half. They were probably 13 or maybe even more. So I'm a bit skeptical. I've tasted some of these wines. I've tasted some older martini wines that, yeah, they might be in that range. You know, I think people talk about alcohol and Zinfandel and alcohol, and they talk about these wines that are 14 and 15%, but there are really two ways to get to 15%. One of the ways is to pick the grapes at 23, 23 and a half, which with Cabernet would get you to about 12 and a half, 13% alcohol. But with Zinfandel, which tends to release some sugar after it's been crushed because there's some withering in those clusters, climbs a little bit. The other way to do it is to do what many people are doing, even with Cabernet these days, where they get them like up to 30 bricks in an attempt to 
soften the tannins and change the pH range out a little bit. And then they take and add water back and you can ferment that so it ends up at 15% alcohol. But the wines are totally different. One has like this kind of raisiny, overripe, sort of heavy, frequently a sweet-like character to it. The other is vibrant and alive and high energy and, and fun to drink. So what would Joe been working with in terms of grape varieties? Obviously, it's labeled Zin, but what was in the Teldesky parcel that he was working with? Teldesky parcel he was working with had some Petit Syrah and some Carignan in it. Not a lot, actually. The Teldesky uh, blocks up in that area were, while not pure, they were probably 85 or 90% Zinfandel. And the blocks would kind of bleed into one another. So you had these really old vine Zinfandels, which had Carignan and some Petit Syrah associated with them. But the vineyard would then sort of bleed into this really mixed block of Petit Syrah that you know, would have other grape varieties in it that were multiple and un- sometimes unidentifiable. So like all old Zinfandel, I mean, uh, I've worked with a lot of old vineyards now, and it's rare that you find a pure old vine Zinfandel vineyard. And in some ways, not completely perfect, but one of the measures of knowing how old a vineyard is is just how mixed up it is. You know, you think about what was happening in 1852, Zinfandel arrives in California. Uh, it gets to Napa first, uh, an area near Trefethen, grown by a guy named Joseph Osborne, who gets himself shot. It's brought over to Sonoma, Aristi at Buena Vista adopts it, Vallejo adopts it. Vallejo is a French winemaker named Voire who thinks that it's like mana from heaven because he's been working with mission grapes and like this is like a real European grape with acid in the whole nine yards. And that group really focused on Zinfandel. So the Alta California begins writing up. So people are really planting Zinfandel like mad. It seems to be the right place, but nobody knows where it came from. And so this is before Phylloxera hits. Phylloxera hits in the 1870s. And they have a lot of other grapes that they're working with. There's a big nursery in the middle of Sonoma in Kenwood called the Drummond Nursery. And he's bringing in lots of cuttings from various places. There are big nurseries out in the uh, Central Valley. So they're trying all sorts of grapes. So if you look at the really old vineyards, they can have up to 20 some odd different grape varieties. Old Hill, for instance, was a vineyard which was planted in 1861 originally by William McPherson Hill. And he lived long enough to go through Phylloxera and replant it on St. George Rootstock. But he kind of duplicated what he had in the vineyard because he liked what he had. I think there are 21 different varieties in that, some of which we can't even identify with DNA which is not entirely surprising. I mean, you have to have control samples so you can, when you analyze something, you can compare it to something you know is that grape variety. But occasionally, we don't have that grape variety in the control group. And there are, what, something like 20,000 vinifera varieties, and the control group we have is about five. So you can see how there might be things there that had been brought in from God knows where. Heresy went to Europe and brought back hundreds of cuttings. Nobody knows where those cuttings went. There was a lot of material input into California, and those ended up in these old Zinfandel vineyards. After phylloxera hit, and when they replanted, the three grapes that are most commonly seen in these old Zinfandel vineyards were planted in the 1880s through the early 1900s. 
is Petit Syrah, Carignan, and Alicante Boucher. And each one of those grapes serves a purpose. So if you happen to be in the Russian River where you don't usually get great color in the Zinfandel, you'll find that there's more Alicante Boucher planted out there because it's the grape that gives you color. It's one of the few red juice grapes in California. You uh, need acid like in Dry Creek. Carignan's your friend because it gives you plenty of acid. And if you need tannin and pepper and maybe a little more color, Petit Syrah is also your friend. In Sonoma Valley and places like that, you see a little bit more Petit Syrah. And so you need all those things to make balanced wine. So what the tradition was actually was to pick them all together and co-ferment them. And co-fermentation creates a chemistry within the tank, which is different than you get when you blend separate varieties afterwards. So the anthocyanins and tannins all come together and work as a unit. The carignan will be a little less ripe than everything else, so the acid will be higher, so it keeps the pH lower. The Zinfandel will be a little riper than everything else, and so it pushes the, the sugar, but it also pulls the pH down a little bit. So you've got the acid from the carignan taking care of that. But the skins are relatively thin on Zinfandel. It doesn't always have the tannin that grabs onto the color and stabilizes the wine. So Petit Syrah is your friend there. And then you always have this massive anthocyanin hit from the Alicante, depending on where you are. So Joe used to do open-top ferments with native yeast and do hand punch-downs, right? Joe did open-top ferments. He did hand punch-downs. He would go out in the middle of the night and punch down. We'd stand on little boards over the uh, over the fermenters. The fermenters were gigantic. I mean, they were like five-ton fermenters or so, but he had fairly wide fermenters, and so there was a lot of space. I suppose if you had fallen into one, you, you could have killed yourself. But you probably wouldn't have gone in over your head unless you, you know, landed on your head. He uh, did not use native yeast. Joe actually inoculated because Andre didn't believe in using a native yeast. He was very much about control. And in fact, Joe inoculated a malolactic as well. Uh, I, on the other hand, had read about native yeast fermentations and knew that that's what they did in Europe for the most part. And I said, there's really no reason you can't do that here. And so my first wines were totally native yeast fermentations. And I've continued to do that. I mean, Ravenswood obviously grew to be a very large winery, but the vast majority of our fermentations, unless we get a stuck fermentation, are native yeast fermentations. So, or indigenous yeast fermentations is probably the correct term to use because you never really know what's in that fermenter. I worked with a, um, a microbiologist who was old school and would do biochemicals on the various strains of yeast in the uh, ferment so he could actually tell them apart. And he found that there were usually three or four dominant yeasts within a fermenter that were the dominant yeast at a different point in the fermentation. So there was one early, there was one in the middle, there was one late. You know, so there's the changing conditions of the fermenter, you know, more alcohol, more heat versus more sugar, cooler temperatures. Um, were optimal for a particular yeast, they'd take over and do it. And those yeasts in different fermenters were usually different. There was always within the fermenter some yeast that were similar or the same. We know that wineries are contaminated with yeast, so it's likely that those are the house yeast. Occasionally, the house yeast would come to dominate the ferment, but it's just part of 
the nature of fermentation. And so if you actually are using native yeast fermentation, your chances of developing a more place-based flavor in your wine is better. Some people would argue that that's worse, but I have had very good experience with indigenous yeast fermentation, so I'm, I'm a proponent, if you will. I worked with Dr. David Mills, who does a lot of work on microbiome, studied microbiome, and now allows you PCR, allows you to look at mixed flora masses. So they started using it on uh, gut flora, for instance. What is in your gut? You know, and all these little organisms. Turns out there are things you never knew were there. Well, it turns out in fermentations, it's true also. So there's a range of fungi and bacteria, yeast being a fungi, by the way, that you see in fermentations. You, you have to wonder what some of them do, what they provide. But every vineyard has a fingerprint. Every vineyard is different than every other vineyard. It turns out there are some yeasts that occur more often in Zinfandel than they do in Cabernet or Chardonnay and some more in Cabernet than Zinfandel or Chardonnay, etc. And that there's a regional microbiome. So Napa Valley's microbiome is somewhat different than Russian River Valley's microbiome, uh, which is not entirely surprising because, you know, these are vegetative forms and, in fact, they're influenced by the climate as well. So Josuan did not use indigenous yeast. Although I have to say, you know, that while he inoculated he did it relatively late after he'd let the wine sit on the skins for a while. And he did sulfur his wines, but he sprinkled the sulfur on the top. And then he'd ultimately punch it in. But I always wondered whether that was really effective. So he could have well have been getting indigenous yeast fermentation. I do know of people that have done studies where they have shown that even people who inoculate frequently, the dominant yeast is not the one they inoculated with. So. It is possible that he was using native yeast fermentations and just didn't know it, but that wasn't his style. And he would um, he'd press the wine off. He'd be very careful about free run versus press juice. In terms of separating them. Separating them, yeah. But it, there was not very much press. He was a bit parsimonious as well. He would put them directly into barrels so they didn't spend any time in tank. He didn't really have any tanks, so... And cleaning those barrels out on the first racking was always misery because it was like sticky slime at the bottom of the barrels. And he was not one for leaving the wine on the leaves. I actually, when I'm making reds, I leave the wine on the leaves for almost 11 months before we actually do the first racking. But he pulled it off sometime in the first three months, depending on how he felt the wine was tasting. And then he would wash all the barrels and go through the cycle again. And he kept his wine about 16 months in the barrel. And he would rack it periodically, you know, every three to six months, depending on what the wine was and what he was trying to do. And then he bottled everything by hand. That was pretty amazing. He had this little hand bottle. We would sit in the winery and it was like a five or six spout bottler. And, and he'd bottle a barrel at a time. He would do a racking, so he combined all the barrels and put them back in barrels. So sometimes there was two or three weeks between the time he bottled the first barrel and the time he bottled the last barrel. Had he been to Europe or no? As a pilot, he traveled to vineyards in Europe? So I am certain that Josuan had been to Europe. I don't know exactly how he traveled or where he traveled, but he brought 
a European sensibility to the way he ate and the way he thought about things. And he brought back material from Burgundy for a Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, almost certainly a suitcase clone. It's hard to know where that came from. There are like lots of stories about that. I can't even weigh in on it, but it was one of the famous vineyards of Burgundy. And he'd done this early in his flight career. So he had this vine material, but he had to find some place to keep it. And he had a mountain abode outside of Fresno in a place called Mineral King. So he planted these grapevines in Mineral King. And he would nurture them in Mineral King. He sort of kept them there. When he, when he was flying, he'd go back up to Mineral King. And he'd make sure they were okay and alive. So when it came time to plant his vineyard in the Golden Triangle of Pinot Noir right there near Forestville, he had this material that he pulled out of his stock at Mineral King and brought down and used as budwood in, uh, in his vineyard. So the Joe Swan clone is like one of the clones you hear about and read about and see the various people are, have used. I was talking to somebody who was, had been working with it, William Selliam, in fact, and they were bemoaning the fact that it was fairly virused, but they thought that it made some of the best Pinot Noir. So, um, so yes, he had a European sensibility, European background, and while well, he would drink Bordeaux, and he was fine with that, and he would drink white burgundy and was fine with that, he loved Saint-Joseph and things like that. He would go and find kind of the unique, smaller, less expensive, more flavorful wines. So that was clearly a product of his time in Europe. So where did you source the grapes for your first Ravenswood wines? When I started making wine, I had hair down to my shoulders and I had a fairly long beard and wore a lot of tie-dye. And let's just say that farmers are more conservative than I was. I was living in Berkeley at the time, so I was doing a lot of Berkeley stuff. And so I had a little trouble finding somebody who would sell me grapes, actually. Fortunately, Tom Dalinger was also a friend of Joe Swan's, and we got to know each other quite well, and I would go over and help him during Crush as well. And he located a guy that he was pretty sure would sell me grapes because he looked a lot like me, a guy named Joe Vogenson. And so my first grapes came from... Um, Joe Vogenson's vineyard, which was on the west side of Dry Creek, fairly near where Preston and Bella are now. And Joe Vogenson took care of other vineyards, and one of the vineyards he took care of was a vineyard down on West Side Road that is now Cabernet, but at that time it was Old Vine Zinfandel. It was called Paulson. So I ended up crushing a total of almost eight tons of grapes. And you kind of sold it on your own, or? Oh, it's a long story. So I made the wine at Joe Swan's, and Joe was also expanding. And so I kept it there for the first year, and I needed to find another place to make wine because Joe was expanding and he didn't have space for me to make wine. So I went and rented space, well, actually convinced people they should let me use space at a place called Mark West Vineyard which is not the Mark West that you know now, but it was a small vineyard that was relatively close to Joe's. So I just threw my fermenters on the back of a truck and hauled them over there. And I didn't have any equipment. I had a fermenter and I bought barrels, but I didn't have a crusher and I didn't have a press. I didn't have anything basically. So I used their equipment to make my wine. I helped them with their crush, but it was only a short-term deal with them. 
So I had to find another space. So I had run into the Prati family, Joe Venucci, who was a winemaker there, was very kind, and he let me have space to store my barrels at Martini and Prati. Now, Martini and Prati was this giant crush station for Gallo. It had these most beautiful, gigantic redwood tanks that were cinnamon in color. They would just kept them pristine. And they fermented, you know, 100 tons of grapes in concrete fermenters at a time. And they used heat exchangers to manage the heat. It was just, it was like primitive. It was like stepping back into a whole nother era. So basically, I stacked my barrels in among these beautiful redwood 10,000-gallon tanks. But I still didn't have a place to crush grapes in the following year. And by that time, I had managed to get a group of people involved, a guy named Reed Foster and Jerry Draper, in fact, who helped me buy my first crusher and my first press while I was at Martini and Prati. And so I crushed grapes there, but it was very funny because Elmo Prati was like a little senile. He was quite old. And he would walk out in the mornings and he'd look at me and he'd go, what are you doing here? That's no way to make wine. What do you think you're doing? And it got to the point where he'd do it almost every morning. So I made wine there for a couple of years. And then I found space at Topolos at Russian River Vineyard. Michael Topolos had just purchased Russian River. And that was the place where I got my first wine bond, which was ridiculous because I knew nothing about the logistics of going through the governmental regulations. It was pitiful. Yeah, so I took my first application into the um, BATF, and I went to the inspector of the BATF who was in that office, and he looked at my, my application. He says, you don't have a clue, do you? <laughs> I said, no, I don't have a clue. He said, you know, I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm going to help you. And so he helped me figure out how to lay out a plot and how to write up a plot plan and exactly the right things to say. I actually bonded a space that was probably 20 by 30 feet, maybe, which was a little storage shed off the side of the winery itself. So I had my first bonded space. And my bonded winery number was something like 800. To give you an idea about how different things are now in the world of wine and competition, the bonded winery number I got for Once in Future, which happened you know, a couple of years ago, is 24,400 and some odd. It's just like that many wineries have come online since I had my first bond in Ravenswood, which was like 1978, I think. So I didn't sell any wine until 1979 when I finally released it, but I had bottled it. I bottled it when I didn't have a bond. I didn't have a place to store it. So we took it down and hid it in a milk shed in San Francisco that Jerry Draper owned. And then <laughs> When the time came, we brought it back up and we put labels on it and sold it. And we did all the sales ourselves. I would go in and call on accounts and call on restaurants and Reed would do the same. We ended up with our No Wimpy Wines sign because of a conversation that Reed and I had. He said, you know, people are pushing for a white Zinfandel. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't do pink. I don't do sweet. I don't do wimpy. It's not going to happen. I just don't make wines like that. Besides that, we don't have the equipment to make wines like that. No refrigeration, nothing. He said, ah, okay. So he's in an account called the California Wine Merchant, Greg O'Flynn. And Greg says to him, he said, well, when are you going to make a white Zinfandel? It's hot. And Reed said, ah, 
Don't think it's going to happen. Joel's adamantly opposed to that. In fact, he says, Joel has a sign over the fermenters that says, no wimpy wines allowed. Totally made up. I mean, like it didn't exist. And probably would have ended there, except Greg calls and he says, hey, I'm coming up. He says, I really like your wines. Like, taste what you got in barrel. And by the way, I want to see the sign. I'm going to sign. Yeah, yeah, that's that sign. I said, yeah, sign. And you know, the one that says no wimpy wines allowed. I said, oh, yeah, that sign. I call up Reed and I say, what's this about a sign that says no wimpy wines? He said, oh, I thought he'd forget. I said, not only didn't he forget, but he wants to see the sign. You'd better have one made by the time he arrives. Yeah, so by the time Greg arrived, there was a sign over the fermenter that said no wimpy wines allowed. And that started the whole no wimpy wines thing, which for us was a real way to make ourselves stand out from the crowd and to make our wines more uh, recognizable and to sort of separate us from White Zinfandel, which was a phenomenon and a problem at the time. It was not about making big wines. It was about making wines that were exactly what they were supposed to be. Like to use the example of Baryshnikov. He's a ballet dancer. You know, you talk about a man being a ballet dancer, you know, you might think he was a little wimpy. And yeah, Brizhnikov, he's not wimpy. He's got muscles and he's as athletic as you can possibly imagine. And he's exactly what he needs to be to be a ballet dancer. So that was what my connotation of, you know, no wimpy wines was about. But Rosenblum and others came along and they were building these big, massive wines that were actually bigger than the wines I was making. I was making pretty big Zin at that time, but nothing like what came afterwards. But at the time, it was good. We had bumper stickers that we did languages. Nullum Vinum Flacidum was the first one in Latin. We did it in Spanish, Novinos Sin Huevos, so no wine without cojones. We had antenna balls but with no wimpy wines. We had buttons. People would collect buttons. We had 30 different languages of buttons that people would collect, and they'd come in to the tastings wearing all their buttons. It was like, it was pretty remarkable. It was a phenomena of sorts, you know, and... I was doing primitive winemaking, punching down and very European winemaking, but bringing an incredibly American slant to it, which is why ultimately my punch down device is in the Smithsonian. And there's a picture of me punching it down when I'm a young, much younger man. Did you ever hear about the albino salmon story? No. So the guy has white salmon and he's trying to sell it. And everyone thinks that salmon's supposed to be pink. And so that's a challenge for him. So he puts up a sign that says, white salmon guaranteed not to turn pink. So <laughs> he turns it around. Yes, makes exactly. It seem like a quality as opposed to a defect. When I think of that story, I often think of you because you're also like the guy who refused to make pink. I refused to make pink. Absolutely. I've had funny episodes. I was uh, doing a tasting oh, probably in the, um, the early 80s down in Houston, Texas. And it was kind of a high-profile event, and people were going around tasting. And this young woman comes to the table, and she says, I'd like to taste your Zinfandel. And so I poured her glasses in, and she, she said, um, this isn't Zinfandel. And I said, yes, it's Zinfandel. I made it. I used the grapes. And she said, no, it can't be Zinfandel. It's the wrong color. She says, this is fraudulent. You're adding food color to it. I said, no, no, I swear this is Zinfandel. Just try it and tell me whether you like it. And so she puffs off with a glass of wine. She's out with her friends. And you can see her, she's kind of gesticulating and going, oh man, this guy's a fraud. You know, like, you know, what's he trying to pull off here? And her friends are probably a little more knowledgeable. And so they 
They're like, that guy's in the Smithsonian, actually. No, that was way before that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> and so she comes back a little while later and she says, I'm sorry. My friends informed me that it is actually a red grape. Uh, and I like your Zinfandel. So Ravenswood, it's amazing that it started so small and became so huge. The arc of your career is incredible. Most people just don't do it that way. Most people, if they sell the winery, they leave. And yeah. you became like a winemaker for Constellation. So yeah. you started with this bonded shack, basically, and no yep. equipment. And then you go up to 800,000 cases a year. Wasn't that fast. It wasn't like it was the next day. I mean, it was, you know, it was a slow, it was like a slow and painful kind of thing. I worked a second job. I ended up having Morgan in 1981, and I had already married a woman who had a seven-year-old daughter. So I had kids, and uh, I had to keep that going. And so I worked at the uh, Sonoma Valley Hospital and ran the clinical laboratory on the nights and at weekends, so that allowed me some time to make wine during the day. And Martini and Prati was not my last stop. The next stop was the uh, steel building at the end of Dead Man's Curve you know, on the San Giacomo property. It was leased by a man named George Weiner. And I like to refer to this space as the former gourmet toilet seat shop because George made oak toilet seats and oak toilet paper rolls. And they were very hot during that period of time. Oak decor was like it, you know, like if you could have an oak toilet seat, you were like sitting pretty. And he had had to take the steel building and spray the inside with recycled newspapers because the planers were so noisy, they were deafening, and so the newspaper would absorb it. But it turned out to be pretty good insulation. So for me, it was like, wow, I mean, I'm in the town of Sonoma. This is in the town of Sonoma. I actually had a short flirtation with Emeryville as well, but we won't go there. That was totally illegal. And found out that George's landlords were the San Giacomos. And when George terminated his lease, I ended up leasing from the San Giacomos. And their family actually started out, Vittorio came over from Italy, and he was one of the founding people for Sunset Scavenger, which was the garbage collector for San Francisco, still is. And as Sunset got bigger, he ultimately sold his share in Sunset and came to Sonoma because he'd wanted to be a farmer, which is what he'd been formerly, and planted pears as the uh, primary crop because there was a big Del Monte plant that was relatively close in Cordelia. And he grew pears and he built his family and he had three boys and a daughter, Lorraine, Ange, Buck, and Bob, who ultimately went into the business with him. Lorraine actually became a nurse and she kind of took care of their their parents in their old age. But, you know, these boys, when I met them, would have lunch every day with their parents. Rosa would cook and they would um, fraternize with their father. The father ultimately became bedridden. Uh, and by this time, the world is changing out there. So they're beginning to pull out pears because Domaine Chandon has shown up and they need champagne grapes. And so ultimately, they start growing Chardonnay and Pinot Noir for Chandon and ultimately others, as it turned out. So it grows and grows, and they're tearing out pears. And it, at first, you know, they're thinking, okay, this is going to break Vittorio's heart because you plant trees for your children, you know, not for yourself so much. And so they go up to his room, and they sit next to his bed, and they look out the window to see 
how far he can see those pear trees. So the vineyard creeps up the line of where he can see the pear trees. There's a story that's circulating around now that in his last days, they told Vittorio that the pears were going bad and they were going to have to plant grapes. And he said, hell, take them out. <laughs> Not making money. Take them out. <clears throat> so I actually got to be really good friends with the San Jacmos and I would steal equipment from them all the time. I mean, literally, they had this, what seemed like army surplus forklifts and things like, yeah, but I didn't have any forklifts. So like, it was like, great. The winery was slow to grow. We didn't make a profit in the winery until 1987. And I had just about 1983 had made my first vintner's blend. And it was an attempt to have a cash flow wine, an attempt to have that kind of white Zinfandel without doing white Zinfandel, a white wine without having to do Chardonnay or some other grape variety that you needed a lot of equipment for because I just didn't have a lot of equipment and couldn't afford it. So I began this kind of concept of, okay, there are grapes out there that are a lot less expensive, Lodi, Amador, Mendocino, that are pretty good. There is a way to make wine in higher volumes, but still using French oak, still using native yeast fermentations. So you make a lighter style wine, and you keep it in the oak a shorter period of time, so it stays in barrel for 10 months instead of 18 months. And you blend it, you know, using your blending skills and use part of the wine you make for this because you don't have a very big facility, so you can't bake very much. Although later I took over Louis Martini and, you know, used two-thirds of their crush space for Vintner's Blend and also Dinwood and McDowell Valley. I mean, it got to be kind of a behemoth. And by the way, you augmented in the bulk market because there were people who were selling really good Zinfandels you know, for not much money because it didn't sell for a lot. And you could blend it in and you could put together a tasty wine that was very credible and you could sell it for around $10. And I thought, eh, this isn't going to go anywhere. Until one day Costco showed up and they said, we'd love to take a pallet of that wine. Or actually, I think they said three pallets was the first order. And I'm going, what the hell is a pallet? Oh, that's what they mean. That's 56 cases. Three times 56 cases? Oh my God, my cash flow troubles are over. And it really was. Before they were all done, Casco was selling close to 20,000 cases. Just a regular check. It was just, it made all the difference. And before it was all said and done, one bottle out of every four bottles of Zinfandel sold in the world was a bottle of Ravenswood. And I think that was a lot of people's first then. Yeah. People come up to me still and they say, oh, you were the first red wine I ever had. You turned me into a red wine drinker. And I said, do you drink Vintner's Blend anymore? And most of them don't. (laughs) The way I think of Vintner's Blend is the evolution of those grapes that would have gone into some of those Gallo blends in an earlier Mm -hmm. generation ended up going into Vintner's Blend. I think that's probably true. Although Gallo was using better grapes than I was using for Vintner's Blend, they were using a lot of Sonoma County grapes. And at that time, I also came up with a county series one. You know, I was focusing on old vines and I was focusing on individual vineyards, but it became clear to me that I was going to end up with 25 or 30 single vineyards that didn't make any sense. They were all going to taste the same. So my criteria for single vineyards was that they had to have a unique flavor that was very much based on where they came from. And if I was already making a wine that tasted a certain way, like Dry Creek Teldesky, for instance, and I had another really good Dry Creek vineyard, but it tasted the same, I was going to stick with the one that I'd started with. 
And that meant that I had other Sonoma County old wines of vanilla was darn good, you know, that I said, okay, well, I've got to do something with this. So I blended it into a composite blend and called it Sonoma County old vine. That became sort of the mid-tier price, so the 18 to $22 category ultimately. And, you know, I was making probably eight to 10,000 cases of that wine. And then I had my single vineyard designates, which I still make today, which run between 800 and 1,500 cases. You guys kind of set a model for how to hit all the price points. So what you find out when you go to a big organization like Constellation is they do a huge amount of market research. Ultimately, it's all about shelf presence. And so if you have one wine, you get one skew. And if you have two wines, you might get two skews. And if you make Cabernet and Chardonnay and Merlot and Pinot Noir, if you make all those varieties, then you have many more facings associated with it. Or if you do single vineyard designated wines, yeah, I make seven of them, but they may carry three, which is like two better than you would do otherwise. So numbers of SKUs is important in terms of shelf presence and visibility. And visibility sells wine. You were in charge of all the wines for Constellation for a while, right? Well, I wasn't in charge of all the wines. I ended up being given a position when they bought Ravenswood of a senior VP, which is about as high as you get in Constellation without being a family member. And, you know, so I was part of the winemaking process, but as they moved forward, they got bigger and they started consolidating winemaking and it didn't make any sense to put me as production team. So they put me in the marketing team, which was kind of an interesting phenomenon. But it didn't mean that I couldn't be part of production because I was. You know, when you're in a big organization, the marketing group dictates flavor profiles because they do a lot of market research and they say that we need, for sake of argument, we need a competitor for apothic red. So we need to develop a wine that is like 14 grams of residual sugar that's red and really dark. But somebody has to still proof this. Somebody has to taste it and say, yeah, so I got to do a lot of that kind of stuff. It was fascinating to see how they arrived at those decisions. So having seen that whole spectrum of the California wine scene, I just don't know a lot of people like you who have really seen that whole thing, Joe Swan to Constellation and then production and marketing. So what would your advice be to someone who was starting out today in the California wine business the way you started out? What would you say to that young person who is bootstrapping now? Go for it. It's still doable. It's probably a little harder. There's a lot more competition out there. But you don't have to have the uh, monument to people's ego. I mean, ultimately, I didn't have a real winery until 1991 when I bought the Haywood Winery. Even then, you know, we outgrew that almost instantaneously. Then I had to build a, a million-case facility to handle Vintner's Blend. Uh, but I'd say go for it. You know, I certainly supported Morgan in his endeavor right. to do that. I mean, know what you're getting into. I mean, don't go into it totally blind. I mean, I had a very good grounding in how wine was supposed to taste, and it tasted some of the great wines of the world. But, you know, there are warehouses you can set up. I mean, you think people like Inca do, and you can do it. Uh, It's not easy, and you may have to work a second job. So what if I was a young guy who decided he wanted to go into the wine business and make money? What would you advise me to do? Would it be to buy land or to make wine or 
Well, I wouldn't buy land. Land is the death knell for wineries. Don't do it until you've got a serious cash flow going. I would say that we have an opportunity currently that we haven't had, and that's called direct shipment and direct to consumer. It means that you make 80 cents on every dollar instead of making 50 cents on every dollar. So I would say be really wise about the choices of the way you sell wine. Do everything you can to sell direct to consumer. Choose your accounts wisely. If you're lucky enough to be in California, you can sell direct to accounts. Uh, You're going to have to do more footwork. Be prepared to work really hard. But you can make money in this business now in ways you couldn't before. But I still wouldn't start out big. I mean, consider the competition that's out there. If you start out with 10,000 cases, you're dead in the water. You're going to sell three of those, maybe, if you're really lucky, easily. And the rest of it's going to be a slog. And you're going to turn around for the next vintage. And you've got that next 10,000 cases on top of the six that are sitting in your warehouse at this point. So start out small and build. Build your accounts. Build your loyalties. It is still a relationship business. Learn who the uh, the people who are buying wine are. and in the various stores that you have and get friendly with them, spend time with them. So what do you think the real machine for the success of Ravenswood was in terms of the market? I think that the machine for Ravenswood worked because it was a balanced item. We had all three tiers of price. We didn't have the really, really expensive price, but we were still considered a value even at the $35 to $37 bottle price for the single vineyard wines. I think that Without Vintner's Blend, it would have been a much harder slog. It was the right wine at the right time, at the right price. Think about, you know, when I got in the wine business, I mean, you know, you walk into a wine store, they might have had 24 selections of wine. It wasn't sold in supermarkets unless it was a jug. And there was no Costco and there was no big outlets. Certainly, you know, Wine World and the rest of the guys out there who do these gigantic wine warehouses didn't exist. It was a very different place than it is now, and I happened to be in the right place at the right time with Vintner's Blend. I ended up with exactly the right wine for the market when the 60 Minutes came out and people were looking for red wine that is good, that is a price that they can afford. The big chains are coming into business and they want a recognizable brand, although they'll tell you your brand doesn't make any difference now. But in those days, it made a huge difference. If you had a name, it helped. The idea of Ravenswood, the logo of it, was memorable. Oh, yeah. It was something that stuck in your mind, like, oh, the one with the bird. Yes, definitely. The no whipping wines thing helped us a lot. And the logo itself, which was designed by David Lance Goins, who's a Bay Area poster artist of some note. But it turns out that that logo uh, has attracted a lot of people. It's the most tattooed logo in the wine business. I've seen well over 100 tattoos. That's just one guy. Yeah, one guy, exactly. (laughs) I've seen um, a woman in Texas named Misty who had it tattooed around her belly button in orange and green, which was pretty amazing. I was at a um, tasting in Sonoma County. It was a tuxedo tasting. It was the Harvest Festival. And I just won a big award, and people were streaming up to my table, and this young woman comes up to the table, and uh, she says, uh, so are you the Ravenswood owner? I said, yeah. And she said, well, I've got something I want to show you. And I said, really? And she proceeds to drop trowel right there in the middle of the crowd. And she says, have you ever seen anything like this? And she points to her inner thigh, very close to the working parts. And I go, 
Yeah, no. <laughs> and uh, Ravenswood logo was tattooed on her inner thigh. And I went, oh, this is crazy. And she said, well, she said, my boyfriend's a tattoo artist and he was out to dinner with me and had a bottle of your wine. And she said, I just loved the label. It was so naturalistic. I told him that that's what I wanted for my tattoo. So I go home and don't say much about it. And not much later, a newspaper article shows up. The headline banner is Tattoos as Body Art with this woman's inner thigh in a yellow bikini on the front page. And my wife basically says, do you know this woman? Have you ever seen this tattoo? Why does she have your logo on her inner thigh? Now, really, there are no right answers to any of those questions. <laughs> it turns out that tattoo artists will frequently do a tattoo for somebody, and then they will put it into their tattoo book for tattoos that they've done. So they'll show it off. So people will go through and say, oh, I really like that. I'm going to have that. So sometimes they'll get the tattoo without knowing it's the uh, Ravenswood logo. But for the most part, they do. Must be shocking to them when they go to Costco. <laughs> That's like uh, And see their tattoo. A lot of rap songs in the 90s. I didn't realize that they were samples from the 70s. You know what I mean? And then I would hear the original. <laughs> you know, And I'd be like, wait a second. This is Diana Ross. I didn't know that. <laughs> So I think one of the things that you really had an amazing perspective on over the course of your career is just some of the great vineyards of California for Zinfandel and other field blends. And what would some of those be? I mean, you already talked about Old Hill and Tedeschi, but are there others that really come to mind? There are definitely others. You know, many of the old vine vineyards that exist exist because they were so good that they didn't get pulled out, even though there sometimes was a weak market for those grapes. Uh, and the ones that remain were the ones that were kind of planted in the best and most amazing locations. So I could run down a list. There are several. So at the top of that list is probably Monterosa, which is a vineyard that was planted in the late 1800s by um, Emmanuel Goldstein, who had a store in San Francisco where he wanted to sell wine. I can't even imagine, like up on this hill, it's 1,400 feet in elevation above the Sonoma Valley in this beautiful red soil, hence Monterosa. And it's got, honestly, amazing Zimbabwe. I know nobody who has ever made a bad wine out of that. The vines are like Hydra. They're like amazing. The clusters are unexpectedly large. You know, as you'd say, oh, this isn't going to make very good wine, but it turns out that it totally fools you. Just below that, down in the valley, is the vineyard that Morgan and I own, which is Bedrock, which was the old Madrone vineyard, which has been around for a very long time, an 1888 planting. That's a mixed vineyard, and Monterosso has these really high tone flavors with just a little bit of orange blossom in them and a spicy tone. Bedrock has more base notes, but it's also got this baking spice character and this like long drawn out tannin that is almost like a northern Italian wine might have. And you know, then of course we talked about Old Hill, which is a totally remarkable and unique vineyard, eighteen eighty five planting, very mixed, dry farm. Rye farming is practiced in most of these vineyards, which is really important. And if you move up Sonoma Valley, you run into Pagani, which is clearly, I mean, anybody who's ever had a Pagani finds it memorable. There's a fair amount of Alicante in there, so it really demands your attention in terms of the color and the kind of big berry flavors. There's Vineyard 1869, which is Amador County, which is what we used to know as Grand Père. But Grand Père, the name has gotten sort of bastardized with uh, people planting young vineyards using Grand Père wood and calling it Grand Père. But the original vineyard is now called 
1869, and Scott Harvey makes it. And it produces such completely precisely pristine Amador County wine that it's like you just have to say, okay, if there is a first growth vineyard in Amador County, this is it because it's emblematic of what can be done there when it's done well. Then there's Contra Costa County and the Evangelo Vineyard in Contra Costa County, which everybody who's ever used it has made a remarkable wine. It's all planted in these deep sandy soils. It's on its own roots. And so you get a uniqueness about it, whether the uniqueness has to do with the sand or whether it's the roots, who knows. So those are uh, some of the vineyards that continue to produce. And I'm talking old wines. I mean, if we want to go to Cabernet, that's a whole other thing. But that's a more recent development. But I tend to look back more often than I look forward in part because those are the vines I've worked with for a very long time. That's a diverse set of vineyards in different parts of California with different soil types and different exposures. But do you see a commonality to what makes a great Zinfandel and Friends vineyard? The thing about Zinfandel is that I like to refer to it as the chameleon grape. It tends to adapt very nicely, which is probably why it was very popular in California. And it's adapted by the secondary grapes that are planted with it. So you can adjust the blend within your vineyard to make it perfect for the location. So a great Zinfandel vineyard is totally about the place that it comes from. It has balance. It tends not to get overripe because you lose the character of the vineyard and the place. It holds its color and it holds its acidity really well. And not only does it taste good and has fruit that's very definitive early, but it's also got some secondary spice characteristics associated with it. And it will evolve with time. So if you taste it when it's 10 or 15 or 20 years old, you're still going, wow, it has the wow factor. What do you think about where Zinfandel is today? You said it's the chameleon grape in terms of site, but it seems like it's been the chameleon grape in terms of the market too. And you were one of the founders of Zap Mm -hmm. and you've been very associated with Zinfandel. And as I mentioned, probably most people's first Zinfandel was one of yours. And so what do you think about Zin today? Well, I think Zin for a while lost its way, although it's lost its way several times. I keep a, a framed article on my office wall. It was an article written by Frank Pryle in um, 1973, and the title is Zinfandel, Beloved No More. <laughs> so we've had several ups and downs with Zinfandel, you know, and you know, you have the rage grapes that come through. So Merlot was the rage grape for a while until it fell apart because of the movie. And Pinot Noir is the rage grape now, and Cabernet has done that in terms of reds. And Zinfandel has kind of always been there. It's been the stalwart. It's always been there to service California in good times and bad, whether that was the crash of the late 1800s or whether that was prohibition. So it it will continue to be there. And I think that what's happening right now is different in the world of Zinfandel because you have a number of really talented young winemakers. Yeah, Morgan, um, Mike Officer would be uh, happy if I called him a young winemaker. Tegan and others who really have adopted this grape and are doing really remarkable things with it. And they're selling more of those wines 
online. So if you look at the latest data, the fastest growing grape online at the moment is Zinfandel. So I think that the quality of the wines has gotten better. We kind of lost the way, like in the early 90s, Turley actually produced a wine that was the Hain Vineyard, I believe it was the 1994 vintage. That was probably 16% alcohol and had some residual sugar in it. And I'm not sure that was the wine they intended to produce. But Parker went completely ballistic for it. And a lot of people said, wow, if this is the way you get high scores with Zinfandel, we can go there. And a lot of people did. So you had the whole Rosenblum phenomenon. Rosenblum made very measured wine and then suddenly discovered this whole lush, overripe, slightly residual sugar wine. And so we ended up with a lot of wines with you know high alcohol and residual sugar, and that, that isn't everybody's cup of tea. And it's been fascinating to see the sweet red blend phenomena come on because they've actually stolen a lot of that part of the Zinfandel market, a position that's now being filled by the red blends. So I think Zinfandel is actually on a really nice trajectory at the moment. Maybe back to that kind of idea of Joe Swan and Ridge, who began making Zinfandel like they were going to make something else and turned out to be respected and done beautifully. And you have, we're understanding vineyard practices more than we've ever understood. So a lot of these vineyards are coming into hands of people like myself and Morgan, who, you know, are organically farming them. We're doing a whole cropping system, crop rotation system that builds soil and maintains the moisture, which allows the vines to access more water during their growing season. Because some of these vineyards have been farmed for over 100 years, and they've been beaten up over the years pretty seriously, so the soils are not in great shape. So we're putting compost back in them, we're planting barley and knocking it down so it covers the ground, clover between the rows, so we don't have to use a lot of herbicides between the rows and that kind of stuff. So we're really kind of like reimagining the way you can farm these and truly understanding more about how head pruned dry farm vines work. Does that imply a certain labor cost for head trained? Yeah, I think that's it's true. It's very hard to make money farming. I mean, so if you look at bedrock, we effectively break even with the farming. You don't make money at the farming of grapes, you make money in the winemaking end of the grapes, particularly with direct sales. If you are just a vineyard grower, and you're growing low-production old wines, yeah, it's very hard. It's not that you can't do it, but it's very difficult. So you're in your 70s now, but you recently started a new project in the last few years called Once in Future Wines. I like to say, once I had little winery, in the future I'm going to have a little winery. Because I ultimately never ended up with the winery I imagined I would have. I actually imagined I would have you know, a three to 10,000 case winery, maybe if I was really lucky. And I would make only single vineyard designated wines from vineyards that were really important to me and were really interesting to me. And I would make them in the simplest, most direct fashion that would give me the best representation of that particular place that I could get. So really what I've done is I've gone back to once, you know, and I resurrected my Redwood fermenters. I retired them from Ravenswood in 2002. And I put them on the back of trucks and I took them to Morgan's Winery. And when I drove up in the trucks, he looked at me and he looked at the fermenters and he said, well, I see you got the band back together. So this time around, you're making single varietal wines that are not Zin. So you have Petit Syrah. 
Yeah, the patisserie I get to work with is a vineyard called Palisades, which is at the north end of the Napa Valley. I've often said that Napa would be a better place to grow patisserie than it is for Cabernet. In the early 60s, the most planted grape in Napa Valley was patisserie. If you taste things like Turley Hane, it's an amazing wine. Taste some of the wines that Bob Bialy makes from patisserie out of Napa, amazing. So this particular vineyard was a vineyard that's a throwback to a vineyard that was planted in the 1880s by the Barberos family. Their son replanted the vineyard in the early 70s, 1972, but he used the same spacing and head pruning and dry farming. So it's an organically farmed, dry farmed vineyard just below the Palisades Massive, and it produces these beautifully stylish patisseries. Now, sometimes patisseries just rip your mouth out, you know, just like, you know, tanning control is impossible even. But this vineyard is totally balanced. I love working with it because it really makes me look like a winemaker. It turns my hands deep purple. And then there's the whole dynamic in the fermenter. And yes, Petitsara, like behaves differently than Mataro or Morved. And you're constantly kind of adjusting your expectations based on what's happening in the fermenter. And then you have to adjust your expectations in terms of the kind of oaking you use. Sometimes you use more, sometimes you use less, sometimes you use one barrel maker, sometimes you use another because the compatibilities, at least in terms of your own artistic mental set, because it really is an academic artistic endeavor at the end of the day. Uh, yes, there's science involved, and that serves me in really good stead over the years. But having said that, I always say that Picasso was a great artist, but he was also an amazing technician and scientist because he made his own paints. And a Picasso would not be a Picasso if it wasn't for the kind of paints that he used and the vibrant colors that he used. You know, those weren't like off the shelf. Those were like things that he actually made. Those were kind of like the grapes, you know, and then he put them together. And that's the project of the winemaker. Joel Peterson wants dramatic color, whether it be paints or red Zinfandel. Thank you very much for being here today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Joel Peterson, the founder and winemaker at Ravenswood, and then also the founder and winemaker at Once and Future Wines. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. This episode was made possible by the Sonoma County Vintners the leading voice of Sonoma County wine, dedicated to raising awareness of Sonoma County as one of the world's premier wine regions. Visit SonomaWine.com for more information. That's SonomaWine.com for more information.
And about the time that I was working with Joe Swan, this country and Western rock musician showed up whose name was Sandy Lynch. Turned out his real name in his wine career is Kermit Lynch. So Kermit Lynch ended up around the table with us at Joe Swan a number of times, and he and Joe Swan became very good friends. So much after I left and went on to my own career, Kermit and Joe developed this bond. So Joe spent a lot of time at Chez Panisse with Alice Waters, who was really good friends with Kermit. And he traveled to France with Kermit. 